And that's what this day is all about. Following a resurrected Savior. You say, wait, following? I thought this was Easter. I thought this was about the resurrection. That's what this was all about. Oh, absolutely. But what does that resurrection mean? Well, you say, well, gosh, it it means that Jesus is alive. We can be forgiven of sins. We can one day be resurrected. He's the Son of God. Absolutely, it means all of that. But what does the resurrection mean? This event that we've gathered for today, that we celebrate and acknowledge today, what does that event mean to my next step? I would like to suggest that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what makes clear His authority to issue a very challenging call in your life and in my life. Let's see what that call is. Would you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. If you can't reach one, I know if you point somewhere up or down the aisle, somebody will be happy to hand you one. Luke chapter 14. There in your New Testament in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you get to John or Acts, you've gone too far. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. You're going to notice right away that this doesn't sound anything like what you might anticipate in your uh, traditional Easter passage. But what I'm going to say today is that it is Easter that breathes the life and the authority into the words that we're about to read. Let's see what Jesus said to a great crowd. Luke 14, verse 25. says, Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to make fun of him saying, look at this guy. Man, he started to build and couldn't finish. Verse 31, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace in the same way. Therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt, salt is good. But if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Our passage starts off a lot like, well, this day. Starts off with a lot of excitement, a lot of hoopla. It says, man, there was great crowds following Jesus. That's exciting, isn't it? Man, Jesus must have been just excited to be able to turn around and they're right behind him to see all this great crowd following him. Now, what's in that great crowd? How how many are there? Why are they following him? Well, if you just start to flip back and 
peruse through the chapters that lead up to chapter 14, chapter 12, chapter 9, chapter 7, you see some of the events that have been going on that lead up to this moment in Luke 14. We see already at this moment, Jesus has fed the thousands. Remember that event where He fed 5,000 on one event, 4,000 on another? Had just a, a few loaves of fish, a couple, a few loaves of fish. I think it's a couple fish and a few loaves of bread. You remember that story? And boy, if you've studied, if you know much about how that story works, when it says that Jesus fed 5,000, the way they counted, it was 5,000 men. With those men would have been grandmothers and mothers and wives. With those men would have been children. So when it says that Jesus fed 5,000 that day, more than likely it was like twelve to 20,000. When it says he fed 4,000, it was probably more like eight to 15, 16,000 that were actually there in that moment. So when we read a great crowd, folks, we should be reading into that tens of thousands are right there behind him following. And why are they doing that? Oh gosh, think of what they've seen. Man, they, they've seen the, the sick healed and the blind given sight and demons cast out and the dead have been raised to life. Man, they've seen these great miracles and, and maybe even more than what they've seen, it's what they've heard. Man, they've heard Jesus teach. Now, I, I don't know about you, I kind of hear that and think, well, if I had a choice, I'd opt for the miracle, wouldn't you? I mean, if I was going to see him do a miracle or hear him teach, I'd I go for the miracle. Oh, but folks, to hear him teach, and that was to hear the voice of God. So there's no mystery, there's no wondering. When it says great crowds, there's no mystery to the number. There's no question about why. There are tens of thousands following someone like they've never heard or seen before. How successful to gather that great crowd. Now, of course, gathering a crowd's one thing. Now you got to keep them, right? Man, what is Jesus? We see what he's done to gather the crowd. What's he going to do to keep this great crowd? And I'll have to be honest with you. If I, as I read these verses, I have to say, whoa, Jesus, that's, that's not what you do. Je Jesus, these are, these are what I would call crowd thinning com comments. You know, you hear these comments, that's when you say, hey, honey, why don't you back up the kids and let's get out here. The kids got to get to school in the morning. Man, you know, this is, this is stuff Jesus says is going to push people away. Kind of makes you wonder, is Jesus' great priority right here a great crowd? Or is his priority something different? Is his priority clarity? Being clear about what it means, what it looks like to follow Him. Being clear for you, for me, for everyone there that day. And in making that clear, He says at least three things in this passage. He says, number one, if you're going to follow me, your love, your passion, your pursuit of me must make all other relationships just absolutely pale in comparison. And that includes, by the way, number two, your relationship with yourself. Your life's no longer about you. You're done. It's over. It's just not about you anymore. It's all about me. And then lastly, and I think the, the third point Jesus makes really just kind of an extension of the first two. It's what we should be weighing at this point. Man, there's a cost. We need to count that cost because there, there is one. 
starting and not finishing is not okay. Now let's, let's think briefly just about each of these three points and what Jesus is wanting to communicate here. Boy, that first verse is a doozy, isn't it? Verse 25, Jesus says you need to hate and starts listing members of the family. That's kind of a, a tough one to swallow because, man, can't we go back into other places where Jesus spoke? And, and didn't he kind of elevate hate right up to the same level as what sin? Murder. He said, you think murder's bad? Hey, my father puts hate right there in the same category. You're not to hate. Well, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus contradicting himself then? And then in Jesus that taught us to love our enemies. Now, let me get this right. I'm supposed to love my enemies, but then I hate my own family? Kind of a challenging thought. Doesn't make a lot of sense. No, in the way we probably read it and understand it, it wouldn't. Because the truth is, when you're a genuine, faithful follower of Christ, you're going to love, you're going to serve, you're going to forgive your family on an entirely new level. Now, what we need to understand here is what Jesus is doing with this word. And it's not just Jesus. You can see this in the Old. You can see it in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, you can see it in Jewish writings outside of the Bible. It's quite common among Jewish writers and speakers to use the word hate as an exaggerated way of expressing priority. So it's like Jesus is, is coming to us and saying, now listen, if you want to follow me, then I need to be the number one priority in your life. And I think a lot of us in here would say, well, yeah, absolutely. Man, yeah, Jesus first. Now, who's back there in second? Well, we would see our, our family, right? All my, my mates in second. All my children. All my parents. But what Jesus is saying in this is that number two is so far back there that, that as you compare the distance between number two and number one, if somebody were to walk up and see that distance, they'd say, what? Do you hate number two? See, that's how distinguished the place that Christ has in our life is to be. That is how far out in front of everyone else, every other relationship, including those close and important ones. Jesus is so distinguished in those that it almost looks like we hate everybody else. It's not about hating. It's just about how much we love Him. Now, before we run away from a completely literal translation there, Boy, let's stop and realize, let's stop and think that throughout Christian history and all over our world today, a lot of us probably have not seen or experienced anything like this. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem very real. But folks, something that is very real in our world today is that there are places when a person comes to Christ... That's going to create great animosity, great tension in the family. There are places in the Islamic world, there are places in the Hindu world, when somebody bears the name of Christ, that family is going to ostracize them, cast them out. Matter of fact, in some of those places and times, it's gone on this week. That family will seek to kill them. Now, couldn't somebody come to say, hey, now, Jesus, I, I believe in you. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you. But, but, Lord, you see the animosity, the hatred this is creating, the tension this is creating in my family. I mean, do I get some kind of pass here? Jesus would say three words. Come, follow me. Yes, even if that's the cost. 
The bottom line is there is no relationship in our life that is in any way going to be able to compare to or look like our love for Christ, our passion for Christ, our pursuit of Him. Every day of our lives, there's not a single day where a relationship out there can compare with what we have with Him in here. And that kind of just rolls right out to the second thing. It's not only all the relationships we have in the world, but it's the relationship we have with ourselves. Jesus says, hey, you know, if you're going to follow me, life's just not going to be about you anymore. He says, you know, pick up your cross. What does that mean? It means pick up the instrument of your death. Pick up that thing that means you cease to exist. Life's no longer going to be about your dreams, your hopes. It's not about your successes. It's not about your failures. It's not about your agenda. It's not about your rights. It's not about what you want to do today. Life is no longer about you. But when you follow Christ, it's His dreams, it's His agenda, it's His likes and His dislikes that we become completely absorbed with. Boy, I've always thought Paul expressed this the most, the most beautifully. I think Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible. And in that, really expressing this very thing right here, Paul says, it's no longer I who live. That's what it means when you've picked up your cross. I I don't live anymore. It is no longer about me, but it is Christ who lives in me. These are His eyes now. These are His ears. These are His hands. These are His feet. It is Christ who lives in me. And this body, this flesh, when you see it moving throughout a Monday, when you see this moving throughout an event, this body, this body is living in complete and total faith in the Son of God. I am depending upon Him for the next step because it's His feet. I'm depending upon Him for the next thing I do because it's His hands. I'm depending upon Him for the next thing I see because it's His eyes. I'm depending upon Him for the next thing I hear because it's His ears. Why? Why would you give your life away? Why would you yield something like that? Paul says, because He loves me. And He gave Himself up for me. Life's no longer about me. It is all about Him. And then we come to that third point, that that place where Jesus uses these illustrations to start talking about the cost. He says, man, you don't build, you don't don't go to war. He said, man, you know, when when you're going to build a building and you can tally the cost, right? You start adding up. There's the design fees and and, and there's the, you know, the things you got to pay the government, those fees. And then there's the architect and then there's the builder and you got all the, and you can add them up. And man, you want to make sure you know all those costs. You don't want to go in this blind. Last thing you want is a half-built building, a half-built building. That just becomes a monument to your stupidity. He says, you count the cost. Why? So you can see it to the end. He says, you don't go to war without really evaluating what you're in. You don't want to go into a war you know you can't win. You don't want to go into a war you know you're going to have to quit. Man, if you're going to have to quit, it's time to make another plan. It's time to get some peace talks out there. You see the point of counting the cost? It's not just knowing what the cost is. It's knowing the cost so you can see it to the end. Because folks, following Christ isn't something you quit. Following Christ isn't something you kind of do. 
Following Christ is not something done from a distance. Man, when we follow Christ, we see it all the way to the end. And then Jesus quickly changes to the food channel and starts talking about salt. Doesn't that seem like a rough translation in that dialogue? I mean, we're talking about the commitment to be a follower, to be a disciple of Christ, and then all salt that's not salty. My, what good is that? You know what? He hasn't changed topics. He's still talking about following. And he uses this illustration. He says, you know, salt that's not salt anymore, what's the purpose, right? Why do you have salt in your cabinet? It's to make things salty, right? Well, if it's lost its saltiness, if it can't do that, what are you going to do with it? You're going to throw it away. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes a little PG-13 on us here and says, salt that's no good, you're not even going to throw it on the manure pile. You know what a manure pile is, right? I don't have to do a Greek translation there. Salt that isn't salty isn't even worth the pile of stuff we have over here. Do you see where he's going? Salt that isn't salty. Followers that are not following are not even worth the manure pile. Then Jesus kind of finishes it up. He says, if you've got ears to hear, listen. Kind of a poetic way to grab you and I by the lapels and say, listen. Listen. This isn't a game. This is life. This is God. This is eternity. Listen. Now, I don't know if you've ever been grabbed by the lapels. I don't know if ever, anybody's ever gotten in your face and said, listen, I'm guessing there have. And I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, don't you kind of bristle up a little bit? Don't you kind of say, whoa there, fella. And I think we have a very common question to somebody that's getting in our face like that. Don't we usually say, hey, who do you think? That is the question, isn't it? Who do you think you are? Jesus Christ, our Lord. A descendant of David according to the flesh. But was established as the powerful Son of God by the what? The resurrection. Do you see the connection, folks? This event, this moment that we gather today to celebrate, to acknowledge, to profess our belief in, that event expresses a power and an authority about Jesus to stand before you and to stand before me and say, come follow me. You know what is interesting to me about this passage? If Jesus would have called, I'd have said, you know what you need to do here, Jesus? Because you've really left something out. Jesus, what about all the benefits? Man, Jesus, there's, there's just such incredible benefits for following you. Man, there's the forgiveness of all of our sins. There's, there's life. There's life eternal. There's heaven. There's being adopted as a child of God. There's guidance. There's peace. There's joy. What incredible benefits. Benefits you taught us about, Jesus. Man, Jesus, don't give us such a hard word like this and not tell us about the benefits. Why did he leave the benefits out? 
I mean, I can't say definitively why. I can surmise that as I look at this passage, that Jesus isn't interested in peddling himself. Jesus is not trying to sell himself to you and me. Here's all the benefits that come with my product. Look at what my product will do for your home and for your family and for your life. Come by me. No, I don't think Jesus is as interested here in proclaiming the benefits as he is in proclaiming his authority to call you and me to follow him. What's that mean? To be a Christian. I would imagine most of us in this room, whether this is the first time we've been in this building here or you're in this building every single week, whether you're sitting on the back row back there or the back row back here, I would imagine most of us in this room would say, I am a Christian. What does that mean? Is that a religion we adhere to? Is, is it a moral code? Is it family values? We vote family values. Is it what you do as a good American? Favorite book of mine written by Joseph Stoll is called Following Christ. In there he makes to me one of the most profound statements I think I've ever heard. He says, today we have a concept of Christianity that has no thought of actually following Jesus. Today, we have a concept of calling ourselves followers of Jesus, but we don't actually follow Him anywhere. Why is that? Don't, don't we see the contradiction? You can't. Remember, Jesus already addressed that. Followers who don't follow. You know, I think one of the problems, I'm not suggesting it's the only one, but I, I think a big part of the problem here, I would say, resides in the pulpit and the pastors. I would say a big part of the problem is in the church. Because I think we have communicated, I think we have boiled Christianity down to this moment. We have boiled Christianity down to an event. Have you been to confirmation class? Have you had the first Lord's Supper? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Have you walked down an aisle? We've boiled it down to a moment. And once I've had the moment, I'm good. I'm in. That's Christianity. It's having that moment. Oddly enough, Jesus didn't invite us to any of those moments. He didn't invite us to confirmation class. He didn't invite us to first Lord's Supper. He didn't even invite us to ask Him into our hearts. The invitation of Christ was to come follow Him. Do you see the difference? One is an event. Once it's done, it's done. It's over. I'm in. The other is a way of living life. Folks, I'm not mocking, belittling, or even saying those other things are unimportant. They can all be incredibly significant if we see them as nothing more than the very first step. The New Testament teaches that the first step of following Christ is in these waters right here. He went into those waters not because he needed them in the same way that you and I do. He went into those waters as an example. He went into those waters to create a place 
where you and I would start to follow Him. And then as we come up out of the waters of baptism, we begin to follow Him into our marriage, into our singleness, into our school, into our workplace, into our finances, into our decisions, into our values. Folks, every day of life, every situation in life, every relationship in life, the good relationship and the bad relationship, the good day and the bad day, everything going on in life is nothing more than a place to follow Jesus Christ into. The resurrected Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, has issued one invitation to you. Come follow me. How have you answered? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I lift up to you in prayer this morning myself. I lift up to you everybody in the choir and orchestra. God, I lift up to you everybody in the congregation. God, I lift up the some 2,400 people that were here in the prior services. Lift up every single one of them, God. And I would pray for each of us that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us discernment right now, right now in this very moment to look into our heart and soul, to look into yesterday and this past week and this past month and to evaluate Is there a genuine, faithful following of Jesus Christ in my heart and mind? Is there a faithful following of Christ yesterday? Was there a faithful following of Christ in that decision? God, I pray for us right now, a very real moment. God, as we begin to look at that in ourselves, would you speak to us? Would you guide us in what the next step should look like? And may we have the courage and the faith to take it. Lord, I would pray for every one of us that we, just like Paul, could utter those words. It's no longer I who live. It's just not about me in this moment. I know I should be angry and get even. I know I should be exciting and telling everybody what I did. I know I need a nap. No, no. May we come to that place where we say, it's just no longer about me. But it's about Christ who lives in me. And I'm going to live every single moment in just total faith and dependence upon Him for each and every step. Because He loved me. And He gave Himself up for me. Would you show each and every person in this room, Jesus, what the next step is in following you? It's in your name we pray. Amen.